welcome everyone, all of our campuses. Uh, today we're kicking off a two-part conversation as you just watched in that bumper video of what it's like to walk in somebody else's shoes. And let me just go ahead and say this, you don't want to miss next week because next week you're going to get to see who wins the race, right? So uh, it's going to be good. It's going to be real good. Now, here's why this conversation that we're having for these two weeks is really so important to us. It's because the reality is most of us, we live life through the perspective of what it's like to do life in our shoes. We're really comfortable with our shoes. But whenever we begin to see life from somebody else's perspective, it really does begin to change us. And our, our perspective about life, it changes in ways that you can't even imagine, just like those people's perspective changed in ways they couldn't even imagine about running a mile in somebody else's shoes. So to kind of get us uh, started in this conversation today, we're, we're going to focus on what we believe is like the greatest example of walking in somebody else's shoes that we know, and that is with Jesus. Now, here's what's true, and here's why we're having this conversation. Here's what's true about Jesus. It's easy to like and love Jesus. In fact, somebody said that Jesus may be the Mr. Congeniality of religion. So think about it. Just, just put all your feelings aside about Christianity that might be negative, or maybe set all your feelings aside about the church that may be negative, or even Christ followers that may be negative. And when you really stop and just boil it down to Jesus, it's pretty hard not to like Jesus. Like, even other non-Christians like Jesus. I mean, think about this. The Islam faith, that religion— I mean, they say that Jesus is like one of God's highest rank and most beloved prophets. Or the Baha'i faith. I mean, he considers Jesus to be one of the many manifestations of God. So other religions, they look at Jesus and they even like Jesus. Now, here's the reason why Jesus is so lovable and so likable. It's because of the way that he lived and the way that he loved. In fact, whenever you look at the writings of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and, and you see page after page of a guy who really loved people well. I mean, if you really stop and look at those pages and the writings about Jesus' life, I mean, just think about how Jesus treated people. Like, Jesus was always helpful. When you read the stories about Jesus, he's always helpful. In fact, there's this one story that used to fascinate me when I was a kid. And it's like this, this one story where he fed like 5,000 people. And really, I mean, they just counted the men back in that culture. So there could have been 10, 15,000 people with a little boy sack lunch. I mean, the disciples, they notice that the people are getting really, really hungry. And, and they go to Jesus and say, hey, we need to send these people away because they need something to eat. And we don't have enough food to feed them. And Jesus says, no, we need to feed them. And he says, go find some food. And they find this little boy with this, with this little sack lunch, and they feed thousands of people. Like, how can you not like a guy like that? I mean, you, you'll be telling that story the rest of your life and just having all kind of fond memories of what Jesus did for you. Or here's another thing about Jesus. Not only was he helpful, but he was also fun. Like his very first miracle, it happened at a wedding. Remember what he did? He turned water into wine like what a fun miracle to start or kick your ministry off with hey i'm launching a ministry listen follow me we can turn water into wine i mean like how much fun could you have with that one right like, that's a great way to launch a ministry but even more important than being helpful and fun there's something else about jesus and that was this that jesus was so loving 
Like, Jesus seemed to like and to love pretty much everybody. I mean, think about it this way. He liked and he loved Matthew, the tax collector. And all the Jewish people, they hated tax collectors. Like, in the Jewish culture, there was sinners, and then below sinners were tax collectors. And Jesus comes across Matthew, and he invites Matthew to follow him, to be one of his disciples. That, that's love. And later on, he comes across this guy by the name of Zacchaeus. And think about Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector. So that's like Matthew's boss. And so Zacchaeus is hated beyond almost anything that we can imagine in that culture. And Jesus says to him, he says, I see something great in you. And I'm going to come by your house for lunch today. Can you imagine that? On another occasion, there's this woman who's caught in the act of adultery. And Jesus looks at her and says, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. He showed her love and kindness. And on another occasion, he kind of like goes out of his way to have a conversation with a Samaritan woman, a Samaritan woman that was kind of even outcast from her own community. Like nobody went out of their way to have a conversation, especially if you were a Jewish man with a Samaritan woman. Or on another occasion, a Roman centurion officer, he comes to Jesus about his sick child and, and Jesus heals the child for him. Like Jesus was so loving to people who were even considered like his enemies or outcasts or not worth giving the time of day to in that culture. Now, here's what's interesting about this. For three years, the disciples, they watched Jesus, and they, they learned from Jesus. They observed Jesus, and, and they saw that how he was so likable and, and how lovable Jesus really was and, and how he showed love and how he was helpful and he was fun and he was loving other people. But on the night right before his crucifixion, they gathered together, Jesus gathered together with his disciples in the upper room, and they were celebrating the Passover feast with Jesus. And at this dinner, at this feast, Jesus, because he knew the next day he was going to be crucified, he did a very, very important thing that evening as they celebrated that meal together. And here's what Jesus did. He gave them a new command. Now, that's really amazing when you think about this, because up until this point, those Jewish guys sitting around that table with Jesus, reclining around that table with Jesus, they've been trying to live out like 600 plus commands. And that's, that's pretty amazing. And Jesus comes along and he says, listen, I want to give you a new command, not an additional command to add to your 600, but a replacement command for the 600 plus. And then he looks at them and says this, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Now, up until this point, the guys sitting around that table, reclining around that table with Jesus, they had been living like under the golden rule, or to be more specific, the Old Testament golden rule, which was found in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, that says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. But Jesus comes along and he says, okay, I'm giving you a new command. And here's the new command. I give you to love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. 
Now, we don't know this, but if you kind of imagine, I love imagining whenever I read Bible stories, or especially the ones about Jesus interacting with his disciples. But I can imagine when Jesus gave this command to his disciples, these guys, they probably kind of lean in and thought, well, that makes sense. I mean, we've watched Jesus. I mean, we've watched how Jesus has loved others so well. Like, he wants other, us to love others more like he did. So they're thinking maybe in their mind, well, let's love the lame, let's love the sick, let's love the downtrodden, let's love the lepers with kindness. I mean, like Jesus was so helpful and so loving that when he not only healed a leper, he touched the leper. I mean, like, let's just show that kind of kindness. Let's serve the widows and the orphans like Jesus did. And, And when we catch a person in adultery, man, instead of being so condemning, let's be more loving like Jesus. Like, like, surely we can be more like you, Jesus, when it comes to showing kindness to the broken and the downtrodden, the people are just having a difficult time in life. Of course, these guys, they have no idea how far-reaching the love of Jesus would be and how inclusive the love of Jesus would be. And here's the other thing about this. Knowing what we know now on this side of the crucifixion, This command right here to love one another as I, Jesus was saying, as Jesus has loved us, that's how we must love one another. I mean, that can seem really overwhelming, can it? Like, when we come across this command, I think all of us would say something like this. Like, loving Jesus is way easier than loving like Jesus. Think about it. Do you know why it's so hard to love like Jesus loved? Do you know why it's so hard to love others first and and serve others well? Do do you know why? You you know why, right? I mean, you experience it every day. The reason it's so hard for us to love like Jesus loved is because of those people. (laughs) See, you even know who they are. Those people, they're just like the worst, aren't they? I mean, it is so hard to love those people. Think about it. It is so hard to love them. Now, you know who those people are, right? It's the group of people who are nearly impossible to love. You've got them in your life. Those people are the group of people or the category of people who are just really difficult for us to love, even to like. Unfortunately, we all have this group of people in our lives. For you, that person or that category, that group of people might be your family. It might be your relatives. It might be a coworker. It might be a neighbor. Think about it. Who who is that, those people? Like, I mean, those people, I'm in the grocery store the other day. And I get in the line where two people are in front of me. One of them had to write a check. The other one had to count out change. Like, you know, they paid with cash, and then they're counting their pennies and stuff, and I'm sitting here going, I had a card. I could have been in and out of this place in like two seconds, you know? Like, sometimes it's those people that are still like writing checks, and you're thinking, really, you still write checks? Are you still, you know, guy are counting ones and pennies and all those kind of things? Like, really? I'm still working on patience, right? <laughs> or how about this one? Here, here's another group of those people. Th- those people that get to a four-way stop, and they just can't figure out the pattern? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, it's like, really? How long have you been driving, you know? 
or, or this one. So I'm coming home from a meeting I had last night, and, and uh, it was a great meeting. It was a really good meeting. And I'm on the interstate, right, going to my house, headed to my house on the interstate, and these people who drive slow in the left lane. I'm just like, that's some of those people. I mean, isn't there a lot of those kind of people in the driving world? I mean, we just, we can name all those people, right? But then there are some of those people who've done you wrong, those people who've taken advantage of you, those people who've lied to you, those people who've been hypocritical to you. See, we all have those people, and those people, they often become this category we say that those people are the reason why our culture is like so divisive and, and so just like struggling because of those people. I mean, all of us have them. I mean, we have those political, those people, right? Or maybe there are those racial, those people for you, or those generational, those people for you, or those gender, those people for you, or those lifestyle, those people for you. See, we all have those people. So the question is, who are those people in your life? Who are they? See, for some of you, that might be why you haven't signed up for a small group yet. Because you're afraid that one of those people might get in a group with you. Or maybe you were in a small group at some point in time and you saw it as a bad experience because some of those people were in that group. Now, here's what we miss about this. And here's what we miss about Jesus when it comes to him being likable and lovable. And that is this. Jesus had some of those people in his group. But instead of retreating from them, he leaned in. He engaged with them. See, the thing that's very easy when we read on the, on the pages of, of Scripture the, about the life of Jesus, it's so easy to imagine Jesus having no trouble with those people at all. I mean, after all, Jesus is so likable and Jesus is so lovable. But here's what we miss, and that is this, that Jesus had those people too. Like, it's so easy for us to imagine that everybody was on Jesus' side, and no wonder he could be so likable and so lovable. No wonder he could like and love everybody, because everybody was just for Jesus. But Jesus had this core category of those people as well. And for Jesus, the religious elite were those people. People like the Pharisees. People like the chief priests. People like the Jewish elders. I mean, th this was a group of people that absolutely despised and hated Jesus. I mean, this was the group of people who decided they were going to prioritize the law over people. They had they prioritized obeying God over having a relationship with God. Th this, the religious elite, man, they fiercely opposed Jesus. I mean, they were constantly trying to set Jesus up. They were constantly trying to trick Jesus, try to make him look bad, to discredit Jesus. And, and if you want to know whether these people bothered him or not, <laughs> if you want to know whether he had a problem with this group of people, look at what he says about them. Matthew records this. He goes, woe to you. He's talking to those people, teachers of the law, Pharisees, you Hypocrites, he calls them. If you've ever called somebody a hypocrite, there are those people to you, right? 
He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. And we read that, we go, tell us what you really think of those people, Jesus, right? See, the religious elite were those people to Jesus. I mean, they hated Jesus. So Jesus had those people too, and, and then it got worse. I mean, those people got worse than just those people, much, much worse than what you and I can imagine. In fact, Matthew records as well in chapter 26 of his account of how much worse they become. Notice what it says. Then here it lists out those people again. Then the chief priest and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus and secretly and to kill him. Think about it. You have those people in your life, but those people for Jesus, I mean, they're out like scheming to arrest and even kill him. But then they said this, or they want to put on a nice face, but not during the festival, they said, or there may not be, or there may be a riot among the people. Like, this is a real definition of those people. I mean, you have those people. But I doubt that those people for you were on the same level as those people for Jesus. I mean, they're like plotting to have Jesus arrested and killed. See, they're probably not plotting to have you arrested or killed. But imagine being Jesus and trying to love this level of those people, of trying to love people who are scheming and plotting to kill you. And with that thought in mind, let's go back to the upper room for just a moment. Jesus knows that in a few hours, he's going to be arrested by those people. He's going to be crucified by those people. And Jesus, knowing that, he gives this new command, knowing he's about to face the greatest love challenge of his life, basically of any human being. I mean, it's such a great challenge that after dinner, he goes out to the Garden of Gethsemane and he begins to pray and he prays there for hours. And it's such an intense prayer that when you read the story, it says that Jesus, he sweated as it were drops of blood. I mean, it was such an intense prayer that his capillaries and his skin began to break and, and he was sweating as though it was blood. And his prayer to God is so intense. He says, God, if there's any other way for you to make this possible for people to be in a right relationship, then please make it happen. But not my will, but your will be done. I mean, that's what he's praying. It's a very, very intense prayer. And as he's finishing up his prayer, I want you to notice what happens. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, arrived with him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from those people, the chief priests and the elders of the people. I mean, there's more of those people. Notice what happens. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. Here's what happens. 
Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where, here's some more, those people, the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. So the chief priests and the Sanhedrin, they're looking for all this false evidence against Jesus and so, so that they could put him to death, but that they couldn't find any. Even though there were many false witnesses that came forward, notice what happens to this. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus, so they could not put him to death, but they didn't find any, didn't find any, though many false witnesses, what happened? They came forward. Notice what happens next. Finally, two came forward and declared, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Notice what happens. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. Notice what happens next. Then the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death. Those people answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? And from this moment right here, it got even worse. I mean, Jesus was taken. He was beaten with 39 licks from a whip that most of the time killed most people. Then they lead him to this place called Golgotha. They, they spike him to this big wooden post through his wrist and his ankle. Then they, ankles, and then they basically lift him up and he's crucified with two other criminals. And hanging above his head is this sign this is Jesus, King of the Jews. And when you really stop and think about all that, the pain and the torture endured before the crucifixion by the beating was greater than most of us ever could imagine. The pain of the crucifixion was beyond what most of us could ever imagine or have ever experienced or seen anybody experience. And he hung there on that cross in that pain for you and for me and for his, those people. And then here's what he says just moments before he dies. He, he's hanging on the cross as a sacrifice for your sin. He's hanging there as a sacrifice for my sin. And he says a few things because it was so painful to say anything, to be able to say something. You had to kind of raise yourself up and you imagine the pain in your wrists and your ankles and what it was doing to your back. And you try to get a breath of air and to say something. And so he doesn't say a whole lot, but what he says, it means something and I think what he says, it kind of punctuates what he meant by that new command, and it gives us something to consider if we're going to live out this new command. Notice what happens. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I'm going to tell you, this is a very, very important moment. When Jesus was on the cross, 
I mean, he was taking on the weight of the sin of all mankind. I mean, it's just being piled on him more and more, all the sin of all mankind. But here's the thing you got to understand about sin. Sin separates people from God. And up until this point, Jesus has existed in perfect community, in perfect harmony with God because he was sinless. And he's never felt any level of separation from God. But in this moment, with all the sin of all humanity being piled on Jesus for the very first time in his entire existence, Jesus felt the pain of feeling like he was separated from God through sin. And in that emotion, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the reality is, God had not really forsaken him, but it felt that way to Jesus. And you have felt that too, haven't you? Like you have felt separated from God, and, and you probably thought, my God, why have you forsaken me? But for the very first time, Jesus felt separated for God, from God. And for the very first time, Jesus felt what it was like to be in your shoes because of sin. He felt the pain of separation and the pain of being apart from God. In fact, we could say it this way. For the first time, Jesus felt the full pain of being fully you. Jesus experienced what it was like to be you. He felt the pain of separation. Now, he didn't have to do that. He could have come down from the cross. I mean, after all, he's Jesus. I mean, he wasn't just the king of the Jews. He's like the God of the universe. I mean, he's the creator God, but he remained there because he had a greater purpose in his death. Like on that cross, he fully shared in the feeling of our humanity. Like he felt the pain of, of trying to go through life on our own, separated from God. He, he felt the disconnection, the separation, the feeling of being apart. He felt the consequence of sin, and it killed him. It absolutely killed him. See, through that moment on the cross, Jesus displayed something that was just incredibly powerful, something that he had been displaying for his disciples and for the people that he was ministering through all his life. He, he displayed this one incredible emotion, and it was this, the emotion of empathy. Do you know what empathy is? Here's what empathy is. Empathy is the ability to understand and share the feelings of another. Now, for some people, that's easier than others. But if you really just boil it down, empathy at its simplest is the awareness of the feelings and the emotions of others. It's the ability to feel what others are feeling. It's the ability to experience what others are experiencing. And the thing you have to understand about empathy is empathy goes far beyond sympathy. Like sympathy is just like feeling sorry for someone. Empathy is feeling with that person. And Jesus had empathy. And that's what he put on full display as he's hanging there on the cross. In fact, Jesus' love for you and Jesus' love for me and Jesus' love for all mankind is why he chose to experience that. It's why he chose to go to the cross. It's what allowed him to experience what you've experienced, what I've experienced, and even what those people experienced. I mean, think about it. Je Jesus was plotted against. 
He, he was arrested. He was tried. He was mocked. He was beaten. He was unjustly killed. And instead of allowing that to build like this barrier between him and mankind, what did he do? Because of empathy, he built a bridge. See, love expressed through empathy is what, Je- what really drove Jesus to go to the cross. It's what drove Jesus to invite tax collectors to follow him, to spend so much time with what society considered the down and out, the disenfranchised, the sick, the outcast, like to weep at the tomb of Lazarus, his friend, to stay on the cross and endure the pain and the humiliation of death. So whatever Jesus asked his disciples that evening, and when Jesus asked us as his followers to love one another as he has loved us, I mean, he's giving us a command of action that should drive us. It really should. It should drive us to seek to understand and share the feelings of others. And if you really think about it, loving others, it really does begin with understanding one another. In fact, you could say it this way. Your love isn't like God's love unless it extends love to those people. Like if you really want to take this command of Jesus, this new command of Jesus seriously, it, it really comes down to living with empathy. To, to understand what it's like to do life walking in somebody else's shoes. Because here's the reality. Most of us, we're pretty good at generally, we're, we're pretty attuned to our own feelings and our emotions. But empathy, what it does, it allows us to walk a mile in another person's shoes or run a mile in another person's shoes. It permits us to understand the emotions and the feelings of the other person. Like understanding one another allows us to love one another better. Don't miss this. Loving one another What it does is it creates a hunger to share in the experiences of one another, which allows us to better love one another. And that's why we say groups are so important, because it allows us to share in the experiences of one another. So so let's go back to that painful question that we asked at the beginning. Who are your, those people? Like when you think about that group or that person, who, who are they? And then what does it actually look like to love them the way that Jesus has loved you? And when you think about it that way, I mean, that can feel very daunting. It can feel, feel very difficult. In fact, it could feel impossible, but it is possible through the power of the Holy Spirit and, and empathy that God can just place in our heart and our soul through the power of the Holy Spirit is what creates the path for that kind of love. So for some of you, maybe the more important question is this. How can you better understand them? How can you better understand those people? How can you better understand their perspective? How how can you better understand why they think the way they think? Or how can you better understand why they act the way they act or believe the way that they believe? Like, how can you better understand how they vote the way they vote? Like, how can you better understand their worldview and their perspective? See, Empathy, it creates a hunger to understand, but empathy also allows us to enter into their feelings. So when you think about those people, empathy says this, how can you better share 
their feelings. Like, how can you better share in their feelings? Like, even if you don't think like their feelings are rational in that moment, that's their feelings. It is what it is. So how can you better share in their feelings? So here's our challenge to you this week. Will you have a conversation with one of those people in your life? Maybe invite them to tell you their story. Or when one of them, maybe that you work with, or you go to school with, they share something with you that you disagree with, don't argue with them. Don't tell them how stupid they are. Just lean in and ask them how they came to that perspective. Or if they do something that you think is like even stupid, like could you be, and give them like a generous explanation or in your mind create a generous explanation about why they might have done what they did? Can you do that? Because here's what I can promise you. If you lean into other people with empathy, those, those people in your life, if you lean into them with empathy, it, it may not even change them, but it might. I mean, after all, if you think about it, Jesus' death on the cross, it turns some of his enemies into friends of God. But here's what I can tell you this will do. While it may not change all of those people, one thing is absolutely for certain. Leaning into empathy yourself, it absolutely will change you. And it'll give you like a brand new ability to live out this command that Jesus said, I want you to love one another as I have loved you. I leaned in so far that I felt what you felt. Will you do that this week with those people in your life? Because if you'll do that, it'll help us to live out the command that Jesus gave us. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you. I just thank you for the way that Jesus modeled for us how to live out the command to love one another, how to be able to walk a mile, run a mile in the shoes of those people in our lives. And right now, we're just asking that your Holy Spirit power will just be with us, that we'll be aware of it even this week, and we'll lean into it as we're dealing with those people. Help us to begin to ask the question as we're dealing with those people in our life this week, how can I better share in their feelings? How can I better understand why they feel and think the way they think? God, we need your help to do this. And so we're asking you today. But God, I'm thanking you in advance for how you're going to change us and how you're going to take us to new levels of living and loving even those people in our lives. We give you thanks and praise for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, again, thanks so much for coming today. If you have any questions about groups, make sure you stop by the gallery at your campus on your way out. We'd love to answer them. Have a good Sunday.